0: The Gospel stories describe Jesus impressing his followers by performing supernatural feats, walking on water, turning water into wine, and feeding thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. But most scholars we talk to think these stories were invented by the Gospel writers as advertisements for Christianity in its early years.
1: Each of the Gospel writers is writing with a different purpose a very serious purpose. Matthew wants to unfold the Old Testament and show how Christ completely fulfills, perfectly fulfills, literally fulfills the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. That's a serious task. Obviously for that purpose he's not going to want to weave in any fiction. Lucan is an historian. Luke wants to demonstrate a certain chronology and verify certain facts so that the miracles, the wonders, the signs, the claims of Christ are never put into the category of mythology but are clearly understood as a part of the narrative of what actually occurred. That's a serious task, to weave in Uh, fictional accounts would defeat Luke's purpose. He was not an eyewitness. In fact, uh, we're told that like a good historian, he went out and did interviews. He sorted through the evidence. He threw out that which he thought was either superfluous or unsupported and only wrote what he knew to be a verifiable account. When we get to uh, to the Gospel of John, what we see is that John is a serious theologian. He wants to extrapolate from the events the the ultimate theological value of those events. Again, to, uh, to kind of weave in fiction or mythology would have defeated his purpose. In each case, the Gospel writers are serious They believe what they're writing. It's it's very clear. They make the testimonies themselves. Um, Luke wants um, the recipient of his history, Theophilus, to receive this, that he might believe. Um, uh, Matthew is clearly showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Uh, John, at the end of his gospel, says, if everything were written... Uh, that had occurred, that support this notion that Jesus Christ is God. It would take more books than man has to fill them up. Um, So, it's clear that the Gospel writers believed what they were writing, they were serious about it, and they were so careful to ensure that extraneous matter did not filter into their accounts
0: in the first century sick people were thought to be possessed by evil spirits did jesus really heal people
2: the way i would discuss miracles with someone who adopts a rationalistic viewpoint is to try and get at why they believe miracles don't occur more often than not they simply say they just don't believe in them because they don't happen from that point of view, I try and get behind, how do you decide when something actually happens in history? What is your criteria for deciding when something happens? And to see if I can find a consistent worldview on their part. In my experience, I don't find one. They simply have already declared miracles off limits. In that case, you're going to have to find the conversation off limits as well. There's a forced dichotomy between the natural and the supernatural that was created at the time of David Hume and the other Enlightenment thinkers. You don't see any distinction between the natural and the supernatural in the Bible. You don't see those words. You see a difference between God acting and man acting, but that's not the same thing. Historians have certain ways of deciding when certain events that are recorded are deemed to be historical, and there's certain criteria they go by. The miracles of Jesus fit all these criteria. For example, they are attested to in multiple independent sources. The fact that Jesus could do miracles is attested not only in the Gospels, but also by pagan sources like the critic Celsus, who admitted that Jesus could do miracles, even though he attributed his ability to being an Egyptian magician. We also find the same thing attested in the Jewish historian Josephus. He said that Jesus could work wonders, even though he didn't name specifics. Early critics of Christianity, like Celsus the Pagan, and like the Jewish rabbis, never denied that Jesus actually did miracles. It's only been in the past few hundred years with the Enlightenment that people have denied that Jesus could do miracles. The miracles also fit the criteria of coherence, which means they fit in with what we know for the historical Jesus otherwise. The fact that Jesus did miracles was a threat to the people who ran the temple apparatus because they considered it their job to broker the relationship between the people and God. When Jesus stepped in doing miracles, he was saying, I'm taking the place of these people and I'm brokering the relationship between you and God. And so he was a threat to the priestly order. And of course, they would want to get rid of him as soon as possible.
1: One of the things that's interesting about the miracles of Christ is, number one, how few there were. Uh, Jesus didn't just sort of run around promiscuously doing nifty tricks. Uh, He also didn't do things that were particularly impressive. He was constantly uh, preaching the gospel in another way with his signs and wonders. He was demonstrating and validating the words that he said by the signs that he gave. So they were always filled with theological meaning. They were always fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy or satisfaction of certain aspects of the Old Testament law. Uh, They were demonstrations of his power over the unclean things of the earth. And he used that as a way to unfold his message. In a sense, these were parables that were reenacted. They were... Um, these sort of gospel plays before the very eyes of the witnesses. Now if you're going to just make up a religion, you want fireworks, you want demonstration of power, Jesus doesn't do this. In fact, oftentimes Jesus will tell the person that he's healed, now don't go tell anyone. Why would he do that if, if he's sort of making this up, if this is a shaman, if this is a show? It it makes no sense. And why would the Gospel writers write in this way if they're trying to create some sort of mythological puff piece? It makes no sense at all. But if the signs and wonders are an unfolding of the purpose of Emmanuel, God with us, to reveal Himself to His disciples, to build in them faith, to be a means of grace, to empower them to then carry on the work of the gospel after His resurrection and ascension. Then, then and only then, do the miracles make
0: sense. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one? or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Note that Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, by showing John the Baptist that specific prophecy is being fulfilled. Hundreds of years before, Isaiah wrote of the Messiah, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy.
2: At the time of John the Baptist, we have a number of uh, different strands as far as what people expected of the Messiah, but nearly all of them expected some kind of king or prophet or priest, and certainly one that had amazing abilities, such as healing, bringing sight to the blind, or raising the dead. There were different ideas as to when and how this would happen, but there's very little doubt that it was expected of the Messiah figure at some point. Well, in the Old Testament, God is considered the master of everything that is part of man. He's considered the master of the eyes, the master of the ears. And so he is the one who would obviously be able to control these things and heal them. And that would have to be a mark of the Messiah to be able to heal every part of man that has a sickness or infirmity within it.
1: One of the things that's happening in the Gospel of John is that a lot of people believe in Jesus, But they only believe in him as a healer, or they only believe in him as a teacher. They they believe in him as a great prophet. But in John chapter 9, there is a man born blind who, um, who, through a progression of steps, as he's interrogated by the Pharisees, as he's interrogated by his neighbors, as he's interrogated by his parents, and then finally, he comes face to face with Christ a second time after his healing. We, we see that there is a progression in his thought. At first, he's not sure who Jesus is. And then he kind of says, yeah, well, I mean, this guy has done something. And finally, he says, surely he's a great prophet. And by the very end, he makes the declaration um, that, uh, that this Jesus is his Lord. And he falls down on his face to worship him. And, uh, and through it all, Christ is, is gently leading him toward faith. Um, his disciples witnessed this, and it says they were amazed.
3: If you take the very latest book that is written attacking the divinity of Jesus and the reliability and the authenticity of the New Testament books, a book like Bart Ehrman, Uh, Chairman of uh, the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He's come out with a book, the most recent book, Misquoting Jesus. Well, there's nothing new in Bart Ehrman's book. There is no new set of arguments that has ever been uh, constructed since the days of the uh, ancient church fathers fighting Martian and all the other heretics. When you read the liberal attacks, upon the documents of the New Testament and upon the divinity of Jesus and all of the other, the the possibility of the miraculous, the divine inspiration. It all comes down to this. It's a very simple mental paradigm that we confront here between the evangelicals and the liberals. The liberals come to the Bible with their worldview already made up and they impose that worldview on the text. You read a book like Bart Ehrman's or anybody else or Bishop Robinson, Honest to God, any other critic or Wellhausen or anyone else going back through the centuries, it's no different. They come to the Bible with their mind already made up about what is true. They impose this grid over the text of the Bible and they will scoop into these categories that which according to their standard is true and that which is not true. Then having done this, they find a bunch of other scholars who do the same thing, and they put all this together and say, you see, the consensus of the scholarly world is such and such. Well, again, what is the method here? You come with your mind already made up about what you will accept and what you will not accept. So here's the method. Do you allow your worldview to determine what you will and what you will not accept as being a fact? Or do you come and gather your facts first and then extrapolate from those facts what you will construct as your worldview? It's which is the cart and which is the horse. Does your worldview determine what you will accept as a fact? Or do you come with an epistemology of what you will accept as a fact based on something other than your worldview? Take those facts Put them together and let the facts build your worldview. These are two opposite approaches.